0: Just ahead on the state we're in, a close one. Stories of our people who had a brush with something terrible and walked away from it changed. A comedian gets shot in the leg and has to learn how to be funny again.
1: I just pushed it, his arm down, or whatever, and he fired and it just went in my leg. It was just completely lucky. Didn't hit an organ, didn't hit an artery. I was just lucky.
0: A runner gets hit by a car and creates the Beirut Marathon from her bed. In between
2: operations, Jonathan, I was calling for meetings and I formed while I was still at the hospital.
0: And I go on vacation to Africa and have a dangerous confrontation with desperation. I spun on my heel, pushed out my chest, and in the most commanding voice I could muster, I said, We don't need anything. We are leaving. Get out of here. They started shouting again. I was not in control. They were coming closer and closer, and then I got scared. That's a close one on the state we're in right after this. This is the state we're in from WBEZ. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and today's show is called A Close One. No less than three shortish stories for you today, each featuring someone who has a brush with something terrible and manages to walk away from it, if not unscathed, then somehow changed, and sometimes for the better. And so, on to our first story. What is the worst, most offensive thing that ever happened to you as a result of telling a joke and then having that joke land unintentionally?
1: I got hit.
0: This is Giannis Papas, a stand-up comedian based in Brooklyn.
1: I got punched. What happened? An Irish woman charged the stage a and hit me. Yeah, and then her boyfriend charged the stage, and I hit both of them. So it was a, it was a melee during the show. During the show, uh, and oh, oh, and just... ironically, the thing that seemed to put her over the edge was that I mistook her for English, which <laughs> the Irish don't want to happen. And this is exactly what she did. She came up to the stage and she goes, oh, "I'm not English." oh, I'm Irish, and I'm about to show you how Irish I am, verbatim. It was like a a movie, and then she just, she did like a little, like a Sugar Ray two-step, which kind of distracted me, and I looked down, and then she popped me, right in the face. You're okay, though, huh? Well, yeah.
0: This is a good story, but it's not the story. The story is the time Giannis was playing a club in Soho in Manhattan back in 2001. The club had closed for the night, and Giannis and his friend who worked there were walking
1: to their car with the night's earnings. And uh, he was carrying, you know, maybe $9,000 in cash in his pocket, which he did back then, which was stupid. We're walking to the car, and it was an attempted robbery. So somebody somebody knew that he was doing this every night? Yeah, somebody knew who he was, of course. It wasn't random. So when was the moment that you knew that something was going wrong? When I saw the guy. He had a mask on, his hood up. Your instincts kick in. And, and so what happened exactly? Uh, I tried to get in the Jeep. I guess it was a split decision. I could have, like, ran or tried to get in. So I tried to get in and tell my friend to drive, which was ridiculous. But he wouldn't have had enough time. Somehow the assailant fell into the car, you know? like Because uh, I was trying to close the door. And he, like, pushed my arm in. And then he was like, his, from waist up, he was in the car. And he had a gun in his hand and I just grabbed his arm. I just pushed it, his arm down whatever and he fired. And it just went in my leg. It was just completely lucky. Didn't hit an organ, didn't hit an artery. I was just lucky. But it was point, I got shot at point blank range. When was the moment that you realized,
0: I've got a bullet in me, I've been shot. It's
1: weird, it's very weird. Your adrenaline kicks in. There's something in nature that takes care of you. Where you don't feel the pain at all. Were you scared? Know? No, that's, a, that's what I mean. It's like you're in the moment. You're very in the moment. That's about the, most, that's the most, big, most Buddhist moment I've ever had. <laughs> so what did you do? <laughs> um, during the moment? Well, I guess when it was over. I mean, did the guy get the money and go? Or no, he got caught. The cops were close. I mean, it was kind of a problem club, so they were in the area. They heard the shot. Yeah, they caught the guy. He died. He did some time. Yeah, but in the meantime, you got this bullet in your leg. What'd yeah, you do? it stayed in the leg for a couple did you, years. Did you go to the hospital? Were you yeah. bleeding? What happened? No, I, I walked home. <laughs> your questions. Did you go to the hospital? No, I went and got a cheeseburger. It's like, you know, well, guys, I just got shot. You mind if I walk that off and we go get some fries? Yeah, that's where they take you when you get shot. So, um, yeah, I went to the hospital, and uh, I stayed the night, and then there's nothing I could do. The bullet was so deep in me that they just left it in there because it was too dangerous to go digging for it because your body will push a foreign object to the surface so eventually the bullet just slowly made its way to the surface and then they I had a surgeon remove it like a couple years later you mean you had
0: like a bullet sticking
1: out on your leg at it some was point? a bullet at some point you could feel yeah you could actually feel it right through the skin
0: well now here's a really important question which is there's life before you got shot
1: and then there's life totally after you get that's shot. for sure Especially as a comedian and someone who has the soul of a comedian. We're very sensitive people. And, uh, yeah, it changed everything. It was a paradigm shift in my life. I had a very auspicious start in comedy when I started. You know, I think I did my first college six months in. And, and then when I got shot, that changed. It was, it's really amazing. Looking back, I became very not funny. I went from being just a kid... Who thought nothing was serious and everything was a joke to everything being serious and not a joke, and I started having like anxiety attacks, and it forced me to have to grow up and make up for lost time. So I, I took some time off comedy. I actually uh, like stopped doing it pretty much for two years, and um, you know did some social work and learned about life and just gained more experience. And looking back, you know, I'm glad I did.
0: Yanis Pappas is a stand-up comedian, and you can find out more about him at yanispappas.net. I'll link to it on our website, tiswe.biz. Thanks to Greg Shapiro for help arranging that interview. to The state We're In, today's show is called A Close Call. And my next guest has had one of the closest calls I have ever heard and lived to talk about it.
2: My name is Mayel Khalil. I come from Lebanon. I'm 57 years old. I'm the president and the founder of Beirut Marathon Association.
0: You're 57? Yes. Never. Yes. <laughs> I'm not just buttering up May El Khalil. She really does look great, and and that's a miracle, really. You'll find out why in a minute. May is the creator and organizer of the Beirut Marathon. The fact that Beirut has a marathon is, frankly, incredible. They don't agree on much in Lebanon. The civil war is long over, but even so, there are still terrible sectarian tensions, regular assassinations, car bombs, wars with Israel, the list goes on. But the one thing all sides seem to agree on is that the Beirut Marathon needs to go ahead every year, no matter what. Like a lot of Lebanese, May and her husband moved to Nigeria to escape the civil war, and that's where she started running. When they moved back to Beirut in 1999, she got a whole group of marathon enthusiasts together. She and her husband Faisal were training for the Dubai Marathon on the morning of the 17th of November, 2001. They were running a new route when the lead runner took a wrong turn right onto a highway.
2: The minute I came on the highway, I was hit by a minibus. The bus came from the back. At that moment, everything came to a complete silence, and I was cornered or sandwiched between the bus and the wall. Even up to now, I don't remember anything because uh, I believe the mind acts like um, a defensive mechanism and uh, probably for me not to live in, in the trauma all my life. I regained my conscience when I fell on the ground And uh, then I realized that something had happened. I wanted to stand up, but definitely it was impossible because uh, the two femur bones were completely broken, serious tissue loss. Uh, I was bleeding and the hips were fractured. I became very frail, very, very weak. When my husband arrived, he saw me on the ground. I couldn't talk because I lost uh, all my energy. I started following his eyes and I started telling myself that definitely there was nothing serious, otherwise my husband would have lost control. So I was convincing myself that, yes, an accident happened to me, but uh, probably there was nothing too serious, otherwise my husband would have lost control.
0: But it was serious. May's blood pressure was barely measurable. She was rushed into surgery and was comatose for 10 days. May says she will never forget the moment she woke up.
2: I uh, had external fixators on both legs. I had external fixators on the hips, tubes all over my body. I couldn't breathe very well. I had the respiratory machine. So I realized that I was more like a robot, but at the same time, I didn't want to pity myself even at that moment. I mean, having my husband next to me, I whispered in my husband's ears and told him, obviously, what happened to me will prevent me from running. So if I can't run myself, I want to make sure that others could.
0: No, when did you say that?
2: It was the minute I opened my eyes. I was still in the intensive
0: care. And you thought this... Immediately upon waking up and seeing your body, you just looked down and you said, well, if I can't do it, I'm going to make sure everybody else can.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I still remember it like, I mean, it happened yesterday. Uh, It was something that gave me a reason to live, a reason to come back, an objective to look forward to. And having that objective gave me a reason to start dreaming and gave me a reason to come back, a reason to feel better. The minute people were allowed to come and visit me while I was still in the uh, intensive care center, instead of them, you know, feeling sorry for me, I was uh, kind of, you know, giving them courage and telling them, don't worry about me. I'm going to be okay because we're going to do a marathon and uh, we will have... Have, uh internationals who will come to our country and so definitely people thought I was hallucinating people thought I, it was the effect of the heavy medication I was under but uh, obviously it was not and the result is the <laughs> the, the marathon that
0: you uh, <laughs> you you would tell people about your dream to start a marathon and they just thought you were you were stoned on exactly on drugs yes hospital drives and yes. what did you say to them when they said that when you said that
2: so they were saying Saying, you know, anything you want to do will be supporting you, but please come back and uh, come back to us. Because the chances of me living or the chances of me walking again were very thin. The doctors didn't know whether I'll be able to live or whether I'll be able to walk again or whether I will live again. So at that time, uh, definitely there were serious question marks about my future. So anytime they saw me exchanging messages of hope, they were definitely supporting me. And that gave me as well the courage to dream more, wanting to achieve as well the minute I would come back to life.
0: May had 36 operations and spent the next two years in the hospital, all the while planning the marathon.
2: In between operations, Jonathan, I was calling for meetings and I formed, like, the board of directors, board of trustees, the whole image of the Beirut Marathon Association while I was still at the hospital.
0: When May was discharged from the hospital in 2003, she set about going throughout the city, talking to every faction, every ethnic group, politician, and special interest to try to make them understand why... In a city that was war-torn, and with no history of jogging, let alone races, and huge political and social problems, this marathon mattered. It was a tough sell.
2: At the beginning, people really didn't understand exactly... What I was talking about, but uh, after the assassination of the late Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri, and that was in 2005, I organised a five-kilometre run, and I called it United We Run campaign, and over 60,000 people showed up, all wearing white T-shirts, Then people started realizing the importance of this event and how it can really bring people together. It erases all social classifications, Christians, Muslims, uh, foreigners, Lebanese. And uh, so it goes under what you call the power of sports. So since then, since 2005, people started looking at the marathon as a platform for peace and unity.
0: You know, this was one of the first things that unified the Lebanese since the Civil War, where you got the entire city involved in something together as one city. Had that ever been achieved before?
2: I don't think so. I mean, even the Lebanese themselves, they admit that. And they say this is the only event in Lebanon that brings people from different backgrounds, different religions, and uh, it brings them together. Even even the different political parties, they all uh, line up at the start line. They get to the finish line and they have the most amazing spirit and the most amazing feeling. But the minute they leave the marathon, I think they all... Go back to their own uh, business and their own uh, day-to-day life. But the incredible thing is the positive aura that we all feel during this uh, day is is really
0: amazing. Uh, how many years have you been holding the marathon now?
2: This is our eleventh edition.
0: And have you been able to hold it every single year since the first one?
2: Every year we organized a marathon. We had problems, an assassination or, uh, you know, serious, serious uh, issues. Every time we had a problem, we would find that we have more people running. So we started with uh, 6,000 runners back in 2003 and the number has been multiplying. Uh, let Let me probably put it in a different way. Peacemaking is not a sprint. It is
0: more of a marathon. May El Khalil. 36,000 runners took part in the Beirut Marathon last November without incident. May herself barely walks with a limp these days, and she even has a TED Talk, which we will link to on our website, tswi.biz, She spoke to me from Beirut with the help of Daisy Moore. now for our final story of close calls in today's show back in 2000 my wife and i were just a few months away from having our first child since this would be our last winter with just the two of us we thought let's go somewhere far away somewhere warm somewhere adventurous so we went to the gambia The Gambia is a tiny speck of a West African country on the Atlantic coast with a big, wide river, white sand beaches, azure waters, from the bus to the hotel, we could see endless red dirt fields filled with termite mounds jutting into the sky. There were corrugated iron huts baking along the roadsides. Women clad in bright blue, pink, and green dresses balanced ridiculously oversized parcels on their heads. Babies strapped to their backs as they worked in the tall grass. It was like, it was like stepping into an African postcard. Welcome to Africa. Welcome to Africa. Yeah, oh. The first few days by the beach were exactly what one would expect from a tropical paradise, except for two things. The odd herd of longhorned cattle meandering through, and the fact that Gambians are crushingly poor. Most neighborhoods have open sewers running down the middle of the streets. Kids play in them, they jump in and out of them all day. And most Gambians don't live past 45. People here know They are poor, and they also know the tourists are not poor, which is why so many young Gambian men see Westerners as walking cash machines. The hotel staff warned us there were always 10 to 15 young men hovering outside the hotel doorway day and night, waiting for guests to come out. They said that these young men would follow us no matter where we went, offering us help with, you know, like, whatever. And they had names for these kinds of guys. Bumpsters. We were advised to ignore them, not to pay them anything, and just keep walking. Well, one morning we ventured out, and sure enough, a tall young guy of about 20 in a sleeveless shirt came right up to us and introduced himself as Bob. We politely listened to his story. He told us he couldn't afford food or school or anything and frankly I believe most of it I bought him a coke while we listened I waited for him to get around to asking for money he did I declined to give it and I thought that was that but later that day we were followed by around four or five other men who tried to attract our attention by in particular calling to my wife they would call her boss lady hey boss lady like that After a couple of days of this, my sympathy waned. I got less polite, and I would shoo them off by standing my ground and saying firmly, We don't need your company. We're not going to give you money. You are bothering us. Please go away. Now. And it always worked. I felt bad about it, but you know, we wanted to be left alone, right? I told myself giving them money wouldn't solve their problems, and it would only send more bobs our way. That's what I told myself. The Gambian authorities view the bumpsters as a threat to tourism, and so the khaki-clad tourist police turn up with big sticks and start whacking away at these guys, totally freaking out every tourist in the process. This happened a lot. The next day we took a boat trip down the Gambia River and we landed in a tiny village, and it was here That my wife and I prepared what we thought would be a nice surprise for the local kids. We had read in a guidebook that Gambian children liked getting things like pencils for school or balloons. So we came pockets filled with balloons. We walked to the center of town and we offered a balloon to the first child we saw. And he took it and he ran off. The whole village spotted this. They dropped whatever it was they were doing, and they ran towards us. Mom, dads, grandmas, and grandpas emerged from huts. Kids sprang out from every direction. We were surrounded with clawing, grasping hands. So we gave out the balloons as fast as we could, and when we ran out, they still kept asking for them. I turned my pockets inside out to show that they were empty, and then finally, they walked off. What the hell just happened here? I looked at my wife... She looked at me. Neither of us knew what to feel. Shame was the primary emotion. But who shame? Frankly, I didn't really know what to think. A few days later, we were walking through the center of Gambia's biggest town, Saracunda. It was a Friday, and a muezzin was beckoning the faithful to come and pray. And from behind us, suddenly I heard, Hey hey boss lady, come over here, I want to talk to you. Well, we ignored him, and walked on. But he kept calling. And then I heard more voices. There were three of them behind us. Then I heard even more voices. It was five guys. Then I turned around, and I saw an entire crowd of men following us, demanding we come to them. I looked around. No other tourists. No tourist police. And my wife looked scared. But I was cool. I can handle this. I am in control. I spun on my heel, pushed out my chest, and in the most commanding voice I could muster, I said, we don't need anything. We are leaving. Get out of here. Well, they took this in for half a second and then They started shouting again. I was not in control. They were coming closer and closer and then I got scared and they moved in, arms out, shouting and kicking up sweat and red dust, hands just about to grab me when... Out of nowhere... A middle-aged man in elegant flowing green robes and shimmering skullcap moved between us and the crowd and said serenely, Please, come with me now. And just like that, we were away from the men and in a taxi. He opened the door and told the driver, Take them to their hotel. The car pulled away and, just like that, we were saved. Is there a moral to this story? Well, only something we already know. Poverty is terrible. It makes people desperate. And when you least expect it, someone is always there to help. That's my take on it anyway. This edition of The State We're In was produced by myself with help from Greg Shapiro and Daisy Moore. Special thanks to the great people at WBEZ, Allison Shally and Joe the Bumpster Dessau. And why not donate to WBEZ to keep great programming alive? It's that time of the year, folks. Tell us what you think of our program at our website, tswi.biz, tswi.biz, or friend us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash tswi.org, or leave a review on iTunes. That is super helpful. I'm Jonathan Gruber, and I will see you in two weeks for the next The State We're In from Chicago Public Media.